Well, David says this in verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. And you might think to yourself, well, you know, that was a good, great, you know, prayer time, but, you know, my things, my circumstances still haven't changed. I'm still in a grim state of financial disrepair. I'm still emotionally wrecked. And this is actually what happens, or that's what David is actually dealing with right now. He's still a fugitive. He's still in danger. He's still threatened with his life. But yet, it is in this pit of suffering when David is turned to his face in fear that now he now turns his face to God. And he looks to him and his face. It says that those who look to him are radiant. And their, their faces and their faces shall never be ashamed. I love that. There's only one way we can get away from our pain and our struggle and be delivered of that, and that's just coming before the face of the living God. And he became radiant. Radiant is a word found in Isaiah 60, verse 5. It's, uh, the context of that is where Israel finally, after a time of terrible, thick suffering, and then judgment by God and exile because of their idolatry and the refusal to turn to God, that in that Isaiah 60 passage is now a ray of light and God tells them that they will see through Isaiah that they will see the glory of God shine upon them. He gives this picture, this intimate picture of a, a young woman and a mother's face lighting up in the sight of her children, long given up for lost. Maybe if you could think about some of those stories in which you know, the, the kid, the child has been separated, has been um, missing for years only to be reunited. Can you imagine the face of a mother looking into the face of their child safe and sound and just being lit up in tears and radiance and joy? And this is repeated only in other, two other passages this word radiance, Exodus 34, 29, and tells of Moses' face, face shining down after coming and seeing the glory of the Lord uh, from the mountain. And then 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, which talks about how we are now, even though our bodies are decaying and wasting away, so we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ, ever changing from glory to glory to become like Jesus. And as a commentator wrote, in other words, the radiance here is a delight, but also a glory. It's a transformation of the whole person. And David enjoyed this, as, and this is something he experienced, that he was in the presence of God, and he did experience delight in the midst of depths of his despair. And then at the same time, he was not only delighting in God, but he was changed by God. And that led him to a pathway of transformation. I think of my youngest, Micah, whenever he comes out in the morning for uh, breakfast, Christine always makes it a point to stop in the hallway and um, to, to let him look for me as I'm usually sitting at my desk, either typing or spending time with the Lord. And then he looks at me and he connects with me and he sees my face and he lights up in this silly grin that only 
you know, that, that I can see from literally far away, but it just makes me so amazed and so giddy. And it, whatever I was dealing with in that moment just changes because I, I'm seeing his face. I'm seeing just his beaming smile, his joy, um, and also his hair just poofing up like a rooster. Um, because we haven't cut his hair yet. He's just too cute. And I don't think we'll ever cut his hair. Sorry. <laughs> um, but it is just, it could, his face can light up my world and completely just change the outlook on that very day in an instant. That's the radiance that David experienced. <laughs> When God becomes real to you in, especially in the storm, the rinse of struggle and suffering, you experience not only delight in the light of his glory and grace, you come out of it changed. And only the gospel has the power to do that. The lies of the enemy could be harping on you, condemning you, saying you are not worthy to be forgiven. Yet all uh, th those changes, that changes when you turn to God's lights in the face of the gospel that he's brought you out of darkness and he's brought you and changed you from the inside out by Jesus, his anointed. And Jesus has removed that curse. He's paid in full your sins and reconciled you to himself as a child of God. And all of the shame and all the guilt and all the stuff and the mess and the sin of your life is taken out so that only God the Father can see Christ shining in you. And David says that's not just true for him. It's for all who look upon him, that he not only has seen the radiance and been changed by that, but you will also be able to experience that and find the radiance of his joy of his face and not be ashamed. Now, I'm not going to pretend that this is easy. There are areas in which um, God's sovereignty in our trials can be dark. And I know um, Jake talked about that last week in his message about trials and suffering and confessing weakness and but in those same times God is faithful and he is in those dark times is bringing us to the radiance of his face even in when the things are darkest there's a man named William Cowper one of the greatest hymn writers I think um, that lived and yet he struggled with a dark and deep depression that eventually took his life. Cowper's mom had died when he was six, and then when he was in middle school, he was sent off to boarding school and suffered and struggled until he actually found Christ out of all places in an insane, an insane asylum in his mid-20s. And yet after even forming a deep friendship with John Newton, the one who uh, uh, Jake talked about, who also wrote Amazing Grace, he attempted um, suicide multiple times and yet William Cowper, in the midst of his depths of his depression, wrote some of the most beautiful lyrics put to words. He believed in the great sovereignty of God, but he struggled to believe that God's forgiveness applied to him. And even in his extreme introspection, he used hymns and poetry to process his despair and feelings so much that his belief in God's sovereignty was powerfully displayed in one of his most famous works, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. He writes, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, 
He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Yes, sometimes God's sovereignty will leave us in the dark. But God's mysterious ways is always saying that his footsteps are being planted in that storm. Meaning that his plans may be hidden from us. Maybe his footprints are like sand that the beach and the, the surf just washes away in the morning tide. And yet we never understand, we can never fathom his greatness and his goodness. And sometimes he doesn't defy us just to give us any explanation. And yet this high view of God's sovereignty that Cowper had was unsettling and yet glorious at the same time. That God rides over the storm, but yet he's also in the storm. And when we see God in this storm, his face, we can sing with Cowper. And he writes, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That is your God. The same God who you cannot see in the storm. Behind the frowning providence, hiding a smiling face in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of whatever you're going through right now, even right now. Look at verse seven, and I love what Lindsay talked and prayed earlier as we were doing pre-service prayer. He says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And, uh, and, um, and actually, Lindsay uh, Clinton, actually, as we were praying, she actually cited this, um, uh, this, this, uh, this afternoon before our service. And I was just so blown away because, I don't, you know, I don't know if you read the passage today or I don't know, but that just came straight out of Scripture. And in a very real way, there are things that are unseen. I don't get it. I don't have the gift to be able to see uh, the supernatural realm. I, don't, I, I sense things, but I don't see things with my eyes. But at a very real moment, as we were praying for the service, we were asking God to encamp all of his angels around us so that we can hear the word of God, that we can be enthralled in him, and that the enemy would not overpower or come um, and try to mess things up. Do you know that in some ways, there's a way that we may not understand the angels of God, the angels of army, armies are surrounding us. They're delivering us from shame and condemnation and anything of the, of, of the enemy that is trying to undo your worship at this very second. Even when your fears are overwhelming you, even when you're struggling to the point where you're just dealing with, with attacks and struggles, God at this moment is saying, Jesus is the captain of the army, of angel armies, and he's surrounding us and he is fighting for those who fear him. I'm getting too excited here. I can't. My microphone just keeps on falling off. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Amen. I love that. That is awesome. God is fighting for your worship. And when we come back to this gospel of grace, we are reminding that God fought for us, that he did not hold anything back. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up, how much more will he not give us all things? 
And he will not only surround us, he will not only deliver us, but he is reminding us that he is Emmanuel, that he is good. Or as William Cowper said later in that hymn, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Oh, Christian, there are dark clouds in our trial, but when we remember our weaknesses, we go to God in humility, confessing our weakness, not thinking that we're the man or thinking that we can just take it on by ourselves and not needing the saints of God to come and pray for us and envelop us in their intercession. God is not silent, and God will not be silent. He is fighting for you, and he has come thundering to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and he has said, it is finished. Yes, the troubles and the pressure and the depression of this world will leave us surrounded, but the good news of the gospel fills us to be radiant and unashamed and heard and surrounded by God and enjoying his presence and delivered. And that's why David, David, out of a deep sense of worship in verse 8, says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Does young lions suffer once in hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Can you see this? That your fear is an invitation by God for you to worship and to look to his face and to taste Jesus, to taste him, to taste and experience. Oh, he is good in the high times, but man, in the dark, he is good. Can you think back about the time in which you've tasted something so good that all you had to do was just lean back and just say, mm, 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 that was so good. And that's what we're hardwired to do. We have 10,000 taste buds given on our tongue, the roof of our mouth, and our throats. And each throat, or each taste bud has about 10 to 50 cells that are responsible for the sensations of taste that we perceive, perceive. And these taste buds, along with our smell and also along with our chemical sense, helps distinguish the bitter taste of coffee and the strong taste of jalapeno or uh, the cool flavor of mint. In other words, we are hardwired for taste on a molecular, atomic, and a chemical level. And if that's true of our taste buds, how much is that true of us? that God has literally hardwired us to have a spiritual taste, to not only experience the forgiveness of God, his justification of us, but also the sanctification in which God just overwhelms our senses and that we can literally taste and see that he is good in everything, in our sanctification, including our suffering, including our trials. And see, so God desires to take our taste, which has been dulled by sin and dulled by what we want to do and dulled by our natures, that we cannot taste and see that the Lord is good. And yet God has said, I'm going to revive that. I'm going to bring that spiritual revival. I'm going to revive that spiritual taste so you can taste and see that the Lord is 
good. It's like eating food, wonderful food for the first time and really experiencing that. One example that I have is my family used to always eat uh, canned asparagus. And I don't know about you, I don't think it's on anybody's hit list in terms of like cravings or some things that you want to, you know, go order out at Cheesecake Factory or whatever, um, but we ate canned asparagus. And that was actually a luxury for us because we weren't really rich at all. And um, I thought canned asparagus, that's how it tasted. Um, I thought that was how it was supposed to be. I just thought asparagus is always going to taste like things out of the can. Why would they change it, right? There can't be anything better than a canned asparagus. And, and we, lo- we thought it was so amazing. We thought the taste of asparagus was so good, we just plopped a bunch of goob of mayonnaise on it. And that's how we ate it. No, seriously. Yeah, some of you are nodding. They're like, oh, yeah, I agree. I'm tasting it right now. That sounds really good. And um, I, I just, I ate it. And I, I was like, okay, well, that's good. Uh, the mayonnaise kind of makes it a little creamy. <laughs> Gives it a little some taste and everything like that. And, um, and uh, but I was lost in my sinful ways <laughs> of canned food until I was able to eat for the first time and actually be able to cook for the first time asparagus. Roast it, put some salt. It really didn't need anything, just some salt. And eat it. And he gave me the real thing. And man, that rocked my world. That amazing, that was a shift of like, I will never, ever, unless it's for my kids, I'm trying to teach them the values of food or something like that. I'm not gonna go and eat canned asparagus again. I'm not going back to that because I've tasted and I've seen that this is better. That's how our taste buds are when we come before the Lord and we come before God. And that's what David talks about here, that even the beasts of the field, the lions, they, they fall just sick with hunger. But those who are fed from the Father, even in the midst of suffering, are left fully satisfied in him. And does that leave you with great awareness that the world promises too much? Do you, whenever there's a sense, when you come to worship, are you in this point where you're just, you're tired of the canned asparagus of this world and all you want is God and his saints? Do you, are you left with saying with Paul, but whatever again I had, I counted but lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth, the ultra worth of knowing Christ, my Lord, that I've suffered the loss of all things and considered them rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in the righteousness of my, not of my own. That's, is that what the gospel and what is, is that what worship, as we're talking about love, is really the fuel of our worship and that worship is really um, our love for Jesus. Is that what you are left with? Is that what you're believing with? Every single time you come into worship is as if you're tasting the greatest food in the world and you experience the goodness of God and the gospel and nothing else. Well, one of the things, one of the ways I want to apply this is just through communion. And I wanted to talk a little bit about communion. And um, back in the early parts of the church, we know that the church, um, the center of the church was not the pulpit or the stage, but it was actually the table. And actually, in, that was the table, which was communion. 
And of course, communion has been a big debate in all of uh, debate in history of what actually happens. The Roman Catholic view uh, frames it as that the bread and the cup are actually sub, uh, just transubstantiated into the real body and the blood of Jesus. And yet, as Protestants and as believers, as, as Bereans of the Scripture, we have to reject that because the physical presence of Jesus becomes the elements because the Scripture is clear that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, right? And he doesn't have to enflesh himself with this physical presence. And then you had Martin Luther who said that while the bread and cup doesn't actually become transformed, that the bread um, and the cup uh, simultaneously in some way coexist with the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that the Lord's Supper, when that happens, it takes you up to Christ in his presence. Well, then a guy named Zwingli kind of reacted against that. And he said, no, uh, I don't agree with all that. That's kind of taking it too much. Um, it's just a memorial. You know, it's just a symbol, like a wedding ring. You know, all the Lord's Supper is, is just a symbol. And yet, John Kelvin didn't agree with Luther or Zwingli. He didn't think he, uh, Luther or Zwingli went far enough. And so he needed the view that Jesus Jesus' physical presence is not there at communion. He didn't take us up, but in a way, mediated by the Holy Spirit, his spiritual presence is here. That as we are tasting the bread and the cup, we are actually, through the Spirit of God, that we are being brought in to the presence of Jesus Christ. One of the passages is actually in the passage just right before the text we usually talk about for Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You can turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse uh, 16 to 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And the word partake here is actually the word participation. And this word participation is saying that we, in a real way, we're participating in the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. We are partakers of his death and his resurrection. The word participation here is actually koinonia, which is what we know as fellowship, right? And how does this happen? This happens through the power of the Holy Spirit who enters into our lives when we trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and he brings us um, into him by the power of his Spirit. He changes our direction, changes our kingdom, makes us regenerate and be a part of his body through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit of God, um, in Romans it talks about how those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us say that we have the Spirit of God, are sons of God. And in a very real way, the Holy Spirit is that mediator that raises us up in the heavenly places of Christ, but that we actually, at the Lord's table, we are experiencing real fellowship, spiritual fellowship with Jesus. And this just hit me, because all my life I've thought that the Lord's Supper was just a precursor to lunch, <laughs> I've taken just a, such a low view of what actually happens in communion that in a very real way as I'm taking the bread and the body of Christ, I am saying by the power of his spirit, I am fellowshipping with Jesus, being conformed to his death and being a participant in his sufferings and being a part of the fellowship of Jesus. That I am actually 
in a real way, Jesus Christ in his presence is meeting me at the table. Jesus Christ is here when we come, every single time we come to the table. And that is an amazing, amazing thing. And I just said, God, I am so sorry for how I have treated it so lightly. God, that I don't have the tastes after the Lord's Supper that you want me to have, Jesus. I, I want to taste you. I want to experience you. I want to encounter you in deeper fellowship with you every single time I take the Lord's communion. And yet, there's also a warning because 1 Corinthians 11 talks about that. It says that, so whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty considering the body and the blood of the Lord. And the scripture tells us to examine ourselves. You come to the table and you could be killed. Hey, when you come to the table, that can mean your life. You can die. You can get sick if you take it in an unworthy manner. In a way that we don't examine our hearts to say that, Jesus, am I fueling my love for you in this rhythm of the Lord's Supper? Am I experiencing the power and the conviction of this warning? So many of us, yeah, so many of us I think we got to start preaching that. You're going to be killed. Well, we, we do that at Hope because we're serious about that. Some of us can get sick and die. But that's where we have to see that communion, the gravity of communion, that we dine with a king that can kill us, but instead chooses to commune with us. He chose to be killed for us so that we can commune with him. And so, do you take it lightly? Do you take the experience of worship lightly? Or does it refuel your love for Jesus? Do you believe that when you come, that the King of Kings actually denies with you? I just wanted us to sit in that today. As we worship just to take some time to repent of your sin. You can sit in your seat. You can come up and pray. We can worship. We're gonna invite our prayer team to come up too as well um, to pray for anything on your heart. But can we pray that as we come to the table, come to worship, that we will be able to worship God with just the gravity of his holiness, the gravity of what we are doing, and that we would just be fueled in our love and our fellowship that every single time we're going to leave changed. Father, thank you so much for this time that we can gather and worship you. Father, we just confess how I have taken it lightly. Many of us have taken Communion lightly, maybe of us have taken just worship lightly in general. And Father, we confess that before you. And God, leave us with a holy gratefulness that Jesus, you are killed for us so that you can commune with us. Thank you. We worship you and praise you now as we enter this time of prayer.
Just continue to commune with God and sit with him. And feel free to come up for prayer.